podcast on love, dating, and relationships in the modern world. I'm your host, Marvin, and the theme music you've just heard, courtesy of Matt Norton, is The Love Dust Rag. I know it's been a while since I have spoken to you last. I'm sure you all missed me terribly. Life got very complicated very, very quickly. Life has gotten slightly less complicated, so I anticipate being able to uh, release these more regularly here. I hope in the interval that everyone had a wonderful holiday and a wonderful uh, New Year's as well. What better way to start the new year uh, to make a resolution that you'll actually follow through with and help me rid the world of ghosting? That's what today's episode, Giving Up the Ghost, is about. What the New York Times defines as ending a romantic relationship by cutting off all contact and ignoring the former's partner, the former partner's attempts to reach out. This is a fair enough definition, but one I'd revise slightly. Before we approach the etymology and nature of this most curious and I think relatively recent social practice, however, I'd like to take a moment to uh, thank everyone who listened to my debut and its unplanned follow-up several months ago now. I'd like to extend a special thanks to those who reached out with their encouragement, suggestions, and even contributions for today's episode. I'm really feeling the love, and it means the world to me. This is for you, and we are in this together. That is, if anyone is still around. Like one of my favorite podcasts, The Red Light Special, a great discussion on modern R&B you should definitely check out. I'd like to single out a few people with um, some extended shout-outs. I want to begin by giving a shout-out to Matt. He has not only supplied the Love Dust rag and the Love Dust logo, but throughout the planning and execution of this experiment in podcasting, he has offered a continual sounding board for what I want this program to offer and achieve. Ever since we became friends several years ago, we have hashed out the finer points of love, dating, and relationships with an implacable attention to how our culture approaches these subjects and a pragmatic insistence on developing our own best practices. Even when he moved away a few years ago and our conversation shifted on digital platforms like texting, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and email, we only became more attentive both to how romantic love actually operates and how it should. Sharing and discussing studies, think pieces, videos, podcasts, news articles, television shows, movies, you name it. If something had explanatory power, or we thought it did, we parsed the shit out of it. So to any future biographers combing through our digital record, take note. <laughs> Ours is one of the great correspondences of this age, I'm serious. Together we have interrogated love with a searching and almost maniacal thoroughness, hardly sparing ourselves in the effort and extending our inquiry into culture, religion, and politics, uh, at least in some small measure, so that we might leave very little unexplored. Truly, we love ideas almost as much as we love love, and attempt to think through them and through ourselves in the most considered, broad-minded, and I hope unpretentious way. Looking at every possible facet of the subject from every possible position, with real evidence of style in our prose. In short, Matt is one of my best friends, and really the only person whose judgment I almost value as much as my own. It was very clear from very early on in our friendship that we were more, on more or less the same page. An enormous relief after talking to too many people who were satisfied with the romantic status quo, or at least purported to be. Real recognizes real. He's an introverted guy, so I'm not sure he'll ever join me on the podcast, but he is nonetheless an indispensable advisor and consultant to Love Dust. It is a commonplace of jazz critics that in the famed collaboration between Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, it is hard to tell where the work of one ends and the other begins. Without comparing 
either of us to either of those giants of American music. To quote Duke's own words on his relationship with Strayhorn, he is my right arm, my left arm, all the eyes in the back of my head, my brain waves in his head, and his in mine. Thank you, Matt. Secondly, I want to thank my friend Lauren, who kept pestering me about when the show would launch, who was one of the first people to applaud when it finally did, who has done gangbusters work uh, in getting the word out, for which I'm eternally thankful, and who even insisted on celebrating its suspicious debut with a drink at our favorite place here in town. She has since cooled on the project for reasons I don't fully understand, and our friendship I had to unfortunately let lapse, for reasons entirely unrelated to her merit as a person. But I think I can still count on her support, and I appreciated the support she gave me at the start in any event. Thank you, Lauren. On a related note, I'd like to thank Lauren's friend Erica, who was kind enough to reach out to me on Facebook despite us not knowing one another. I'm happy to count you as a listener and a fan. Again, if you're still out there. Next, I'd like to thank Richard, a friend of mine since college who has encouraged and praised his podcast, has provided a constant pillar of support over the 10 years of failure and the two years that made up the search, offering an ever-present and sympathetic ear in some of my darkest hours. Richard is one of my oldest and best friends and a great listener, so I'm lucky to have him on my side and in my life. Now I'd like to thank two women whose perspectives on ghosting we will hear more from later, Lillian and Elizabeth. Both are women who I almost went out with during the two-year search, but neither I could quite make happen. Let me explain. I live in a small town that, for the purposes of this podcast, we'll call Smallville. But most of the search took place off-site, in a large metropolitan center about 100 miles away that we'll call Metropolis. I'm not a huge comic book nerd, relax, nor a partisan of DC Comics in particular, but I think those points of reference work well enough. And these women, like most of the women pursued during the search, are residents of Metropolis. For Lillian, the issue was logistics. When I contacted her initially on OKCupid, she was on her way out of Metropolis, having been there for a summer internship. She was interested, however, in planning on coming back in a more permanent way, so she gave me her email address and we kept in touch. But when she returned, I think I was seeing someone or was on the verge of seeing someone. And when I wasn't seeing someone, I believe she was, and it just never happened before the deadline passed and I stopped going to the city. Still, since we discussed our dissatisfaction with dating and she seemed to approach these questions in a pretty sincere and open-handed way, I told her about the podcast and she had very kind words to say about both the debut and the special episode, in addition to offering her own thoughts and experiences uh, with ghosting. I cannot understate how fantastic Lillian is, smart, thoughtful, intellectually curious, among many other sterling qualities, so I'm happy to have her support. Elizabeth, another denizen of Metropolis, I had reached out to twice on OkCupid. But despite our flirtatiousness and our shared interests, and the fact she's Midwestern, I always tested well with Midwesterners. Elizabeth said it's probably because I'm very sincere. Elizabeth balked at the distance. Even though both times she almost agreed to go out with me. I hadn't been in touch with her since my failed overtures, but I did follow her from Love Dust's Instagram account. Very sneaky. She followed me back and after listening to the podcast, reached out to say how much she liked it. It was wonderful to hear from her too. She is intelligent, warm, gregarious, and just again, really fantastic. I am thankful to count you both, Lillian and Elizabeth, as listeners and interlocutors, and I hope to hear from you again. This is an unexpected shout out, but I'd like to thank my colleague, Brandon. I ran into him at a work function ages ago now. And in addition to complimenting Love Dust, 
He offered his support if I needed help with any of the technical aspects going forward. Brandon is a mensch. There is no other word for it, really. And I am happy to have his support, too. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge my friend John, known to his friends and perhaps even his enemies as soup. Spelled like the delicious food, but standing for super, as in Super John. I told him about the podcast immediately upon its launch, and although I haven't heard from him, he did like the link I shared on Facebook, which is very significant for him because he isn't an active Facebook user and almost never likes things unless he really likes them. Like Richard, I've known Soup since college, and I'm pleased to have his support. We don't talk often, but whenever we do, it's as if no time has elapsed since our last conversation. He is a great listener. He always remembers everything I tell him. He's an enormously erudite person, having decided to follow the grueling path of doctoral work in the humanities like myself. He is sarcastic and biting and despises all can't. He's hilarious when he's drunk, and he is also one of the kindest and most decent people I've ever met. I'm thrilled you're listening, Soup, and I can't wait to meet your girlfriend, who I'm sure you'll probably marry. I know you've chosen someone excellent because you are yourself excellent, and if you couldn't find someone equally so, you just wouldn't bother, which is surely in the spirit of love dust. I'd like to thank Laura. Laura named after the Laura from Boris Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago, which I still remember to this day because I had an enormous crush on a girl in college named Laura, also named after Pasternak's heroine. I wonder what happened to her. She's probably married. Uh, lest I lapse into nostalgic reverie about this girl who got away and shortchanged my friend. This Laura is someone I met on AKCupid maybe five years ago, maybe more, God. This is when I first waded into online dating, unwilling or unable to fully commit to the process, but still somewhat curious about it. This was before Tinder or any of the apps now flooding the market, or at least before any were on my radar. While I set up a profile and sent out messages, I didn't take the service all that seriously, sending mercurial missives only to women who were not geographically realistic. It was a weird sort of whim that I can't fully account for. Maybe I'll talk about it in another episode. It's a whim I still kind of have on some level. Um, I probably won't talk about it. It's really not that interesting. During this ersatz period, that kind of forms a prehistory to the search, I contacted a lot of women who lived in Chicago in particular because I was really into misconnections at the time, those often sad and wistful ads placed on Craigslist. And Chicago has the best, hands down, better than New York, Los Angeles, London, San Francisco, you name it. For whatever reason, the Windy City is the most romantic and sentimental city on earth. But only the exchange with Laura went anywhere, us becoming pen pals of a kind. Over the years, we've kept an increasingly infrequent contact, exchanging emails, messages on Gchat, and even letters along the way. At first, I was interested in a hypothetical, but still ultimately romantic kind of way. I'm sure she was never interested in me at all, not even a little bit. But over time, I think even I was more mystified and perhaps slightly amused than anything else. She seemed salty, dyspeptic, a little wry and acrid even, as if Dorothy Parker wrote for Jezebel or the All of the Millions or Hairpin or whatever's cool these days. I don't know if Jezebel is as cool as it used to be, so I don't know, whatever. Since there was always a great deal of respect and fondness between us, I gave her advance notice of the podcast launch and she had complimentary things to say after listening. She praised my enunciation, a particular point of pride for me. She also confessed this was the first time hearing my voice, which totally blew me away. We have never spoken, not once. Probably never will, yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank Alex, who reached out to Facebook, who reached out on Facebook, rather, not to Facebook, with effusive praise. 
Alex was in my graduate program some time ago, earning a master's and eventually departing our institution for her own doctoral work elsewhere, I believe. I think that was what she did. Anyway. And I had the great fortune to fall in with her and her friends while she was here. Uh, they were a great group who let me join their gang. I'd also like to thank my colleague Whitney. She's one of the most congenial and emotionally honest people I have met. After our conversation about the podcast, it was clear she is someone who gets it. Uh, I'd like to thank Hannah, and I'd like to thank Aisha. I'd like to thank Joe Wildfire. I have to, get, I have to mention both names there because his last name is ridiculous. Um, he, in, in particular, made sure I recorded this episode. He sent me an email asking me where the love was, and of course I can't, can't let down my fans. But most of all, I think I'd like to give a really loud shout-out to Jenny, a.k.a. J-Dubs, who is easily one of my best friends. I had to deal with the death in the family recently. Um, that's a large part of the delay. And she was the first person I thought of to contact. And she was the, there for me in a way no one was, and I don't think anyone could be. I'm not sure you like this podcast, Jenny, but that's okay. You've supported it because you are my friend and I care about you, and I can always trust you to keep it at 100, which is really essential. Goodness knows we don't always agree, but you have some of the best judgment I have ever encountered. Thank you, Jenny, for your friendship. It means the world to me. To everybody else who's listening, Casey, I wonder if you're out there, I appreciate your support, and whatever strangers have stumbled this way, thanks for joining, however inadvertently or reluctantly, the crusade. To anybody who thinks this whole enterprise sucks, sounds Bush League, puerile, terrible, etc., it will improve with time and effort. For I am absolutely determined to fuck shit up in the best possible way. If you don't like what I am serving because you're part of the problem, you can stick around too. Everything I am saying will probably go over your head, but who knows, you might learn something. And even if you don't, at least I'll deprive you of the plausible deniability you often claim for yourself. Put simply, you'll never be able to say that you don't know any better when you do something asinine, even though you never really could anyway. But of course this is really for the lost, the lonely, the rapturous, my nearest and dearest lonely hearts. You're the only ones I care about. You're the only ones who matter to me. Those who recognize the sacrosanct obligations and responsibilities for how we conduct ourselves when we have someone's heart in our hands, fingers wrapped around the live wire in a landmine which is perhaps just another way of saying this is for me and for all the things I have said and done and have aspired to be, even when I have fallen short. This is for love. I'm a romantic, a stern and secret discipline, and I have work to do. So let's get to it. The article from the New York Times on ghosting I mentioned at the outset provides the immediate impetus for this discussion with its consideration of the term and the resonant stories it shares. This link, as well as the other links that went into the making of this episode, can be found in the show notes. But really, this practice has a far longer backstory in my life, and certainly in our shared romantic lives. As usual, the gray lady is late to the party, lagging behind the cultural currents she often wishes to predict, with a little too much eagerness, I might add. But unlike the paper's usual penchant for glomming onto trends that don't really exist, a feature slate used to parody, and unlike its tendency for growing overheated over some supposed crisis in public decency, such as hookup culture, the moral panic du jour, Vanity Fair, I'm looking at you, here the Times has hit upon something crucial, 
a real key to understanding modern love and dating. And in such a thoughtful attempt from the organ of mainstream respectability to parse this practice, what we have is something quite in interesting. In the hubbub around ghosting, to quote the very fine actress Vera Farmiga, who was speaking of her career at the time, a uh, number of years ago now, we have, quote, the promising crescendo of sudden attention or tension. I'm never sure which. Make no mistake, there is a tension, a kind of ambivalence that runs through the discourse around ghosting, which the Times piece amply documents. It goes all the way down into the term itself. So let's start there with the definition. Ghosting describes the act of ending a relationship, a series of dates, or even a single date, as I would hold, through tacit silence, ignoring the attempts of the rejected partner to maintain or develop further contact. Some people distinguish between fading out and ghosting, where fading out or fading away refers to the gradual or incremental tapering of contact, while ghosting provides a kind of hard fade in the schema, put simply, an outright disappearance. But these distinctions are more semantic than anything else, really. All the terms, fade out, fade away, ghosting, hard fading, tend to be employed pretty interchangeably as even the persnickety folks on Reddit whose thread I consulted had to confess. Even the, if the terms weren't interchangeable, and there are real variations, it is a clear case of a distinction without a difference. In other words, whatever the shape, the essence is the same. Whether you disappear all at once or slink away furtively, whether you've been on one date or have dated for several months, you have chosen by not choosing. Though, of course, the longer you've gone out, the the greater the violation seems to me. 11% of Americans have ghosted someone, according to a YouGov Huffington Post poll, while an informal survey conducted by Elle magazine, far less scientific no doubt, arrived at closer to a quarter of ghosters, and pretty evenly practiced across genders. However less credible as a metric, I suspect that Elle is closer to the mark, both in the rate of incidence and in the applicability across genders. I have no proof of the former, but even if I'm wrong, 10% is significant enough. I don't have any proof of the latter either, but every conversation I've had across genders has mentioned a ghost. Every one. Anecdotal, I know. I also suspect, if it was gender-specific, that the term would in some way reflect it, and that simply isn't true. Ghosts are gender-neutral, after all. This question of gender brings up another point I want to take a moment to address, related to the broader project of love dust. Gender is important, men and women are di different, sexism is real. And so is the rape culture, such rank misogyny under rights at every level and in every facet of American life. A culture we should all be working to level in word and deed. So to pretend that experiences of dating are equivalent is not only stupid and wrong, but irresponsible, reckless, unethical. Women have to face the kind of menace that men never do. And when we account for race, women of color and black women in particular uh, have to deal with even more. At the same time, to pretend that our experiences bear no comparison seems to do no one any favors either. So while I will certainly address gender as well as race when they seem most pertinent, I also want to carve out a space to discuss the ways in which we have more in common than generally acknowledged, without sidestepping these real differences. Ghosting is one of those areas. Whatever weirdness inheres to the word and to the frequency of its use in the world, the deeper uncertainty and ambivalence resides in the practice itself. As so many stories reflect, people expect to be ghosted, but still hate it. People feel bad about ghosting, but still do it. 
People go with no shame or reservations and yet are often defensive about their right to do so. There is a veritable Gordian knot of vexed and irreconcilable reactions in which ghosting is hopelessly caught up, entangled. Even for me, someone who loathes ghosting from the pit and marrow of my being, from the core and the pith of who I am, has both ghosted and been ghosted. But I'll get to that. And if I can't quite absolve myself of hypocrisy by the end of this episode, and I'm not looking to absolve myself of anything here, there are no angels to be found in this Empyrean. I can at least provide some context for my own shortcomings and for the shortcomings we share as a species. I might also propose how we might move forward as one too. Yes, like the previous episode, or, or half episode I should say, there is a moral to the story. And also like its predecessor, the moral is one responsive to human frailty designed to fit human needs. It's not a happy ending, to be sure, but we might be able to wrench some happiness from it. Like Baudelaire said of beauty, quoting Stendhal, love dust offers a promise of happiness. So what makes ghosting terrible, a sin against philosophy? To borrow another phrase, this one from Aristotle. Goodness knows turning someone down is never pleasant. We all, with the exception of perhaps sociopaths and sadists, recoil from hurting another person's feelings, and rightly so. As someone who has never rated very highly as a romantic partner, or even rated at all, I haven't often been in the position of the party terminating a connection. But that responsibility has fallen to me on a few occasions, and I felt dreadful for bringing about any disappointment, having spent so much of my adult life choking on it. Given this line of thinking, then, one could reasonably protest, isn't it better to leave such rejection unarticulated, letting the person down gently, sparing them the harsh, unvarnished truth? But I never wondered. For I knew, as someone who had lived on the other side of rejection, that the only thing worse than to be rejected is to be denied it, to have from oneself withhold, withheld rather, what is called in congressional parlance for confirmation hearings of presidential appointees an up-or-down vote. We all deserve an up-or-down vote. Now, I'm not talking about ghosting friends, something the Times touches on. That is a more complicated emotional terrain with a different set of concerns and considerations. And I don't really give a shit about friends. Let's, let's be real here. Nor am I talking about ghosting the terrible, the untoward, the morally reprobate. They deserve nothing at all. Not now, not ever. Though they have to be genuinely bad, not just unappealing to you. You can't penalize someone for liking you. Unrequited feelings are not a capital crime. I am talking about someone you have dated or gone on a date with that you simply don't care for. You didn't have much in common with, you weren't attracted to them, you were missing some elusive spark, they chewed with their mouth open or too loudly, or had bad breath, or didn't share your political opinions, or didn't do CrossFit, or some bullshit like that. I don't know. What I do know is that you are not helping them by remaining silent. You are never helping them. And to be honest, the reluctance you feel over hurting their feelings, which I described earlier, the kindness you think you're doing them, it's bullshit. You don't want to own their pain, but that's tough. You do own it. It's like a version of former Secretary of State Colin Powell's Pottery Barn Rule, a phrase used to refer to the U.S.'s obligation for the reconstruction of Iraq after the invasion. You broke it. You bought it. Everyone is responsible for their own feelings, as Aisha Tyler reminds us, but you have to admit you are the cause of them. That doesn't mean it's your fault. It isn't. But it does mean you have to accept those bad feelings as a price of being human, as a cost of admission to civilized life. You invent a concern for their feelings to make yourself feel better, not because you are actually concerned about the person. It's not that you are hostile to those feelings, 
or that you don't care about them in the abstract. It's not even that you don't genuinely believe what you're doing is a kindness meant for them. I'm sure you do. It only means that however much you do care about hurting the other person, that's not the primary consideration. And the suggestion that that's what motivates you, well, it's a rationalization. You don't mean to lie to yourself. There is very rarely, I think, bad faith here. But you are. You simply want to protect yourself and your image of yourself. You want to avoid unpleasantness. Because you really thought about it, and no one ever does, alas, you'd realize that saying nothing is the worst. Not because to ghost is confusing, creating ambiguity in the rejected for what happened to this person they like. Despite Amanda Hess at Slate poo-pooing that argument against ghosting, of course we all know it's happened, even when we pretend or hope otherwise. We have been spurned. It isn't even really about being denied cause for our rejection. We'd all prefer an explanation, of course. But no one owes us that particular kindness. And it's very rare, even when someone does try to supply one, that it will satisfy us. We don't really often want to know why, even if we tell ourselves we do. And even if we did, we aren't going to get a good answer. If the other person tried to give a rationale, they probably couldn't, for one's own motives are frequently mysterious, even to ourselves. And we know this. What does and should offend us about the act of ghosting, as Victoria Carter at XO Jane argues in the best attack on the subject hands down, is that it is cowardly and at its root dishonest. Her words. It is, in short, the height of disrespect. To give someone a proper send-off, and it doesn't have to be much, demonstrates, again in her words, that you had enough deference for whatever we had, even if it was just one night, to know that it needed to be ended in a mature and thoughtful manner. With an appealing nakedness of feeling, she says that it is enough to validate her, and indeed it is enough to validate anyone. If validation seems like too strong, too melodramatic, even too needy a word, it is none of those things. It says more about the culture that we live in, that it considers those terms appropriate to what we're talking about. Stanley Cavell, the great moral philosopher, has put it best. We are all driven at bottom by a basic need for acknowledgement. And if we can't manage that basic threshold, what's the point? What are we doing here? Now, some may not care. Amanda Hess does not, or at least claims not to, in her weirdly Darwinian account of dating in which ghosting is perfectly fine because we are all driven by self-interest and need to consider no one's feelings but our own. An ethos for all its seeming daring that merely recapitulates the moronically phrased platitude that all is fair in love and war. Now that describes a reality to be sure, but some of us do care. I'm willing to wager that many of us, if not most of us, care. And we should not be faulted for caring, for giving a shit about how we are treated. We should not pretend to abide by that thin gruel of remorseless disregard. We are real too. And call me crazy, but I think we should have the last word. Love dust, to be sure, is going to damn well demand it, arguing until the ding-dong day of doom, to quote Faulkner's famed Nobel Prize speech, for a resplendent vision of life's enduring and limitless possibility. If heaven isn't a place on earth, as Belinda Carlisle famously sang, then our utopia, literally no place, will be one day made flesh. As I said from this start of this exercise in unhinged vanity and mouth-foaming rants, Love is not fair, and it never will be. This is not wishes and rainbows, but it can be decent, which means it isn't just gall and heartburn either, as Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote in one of the so-called terrible sonnets. Christ, even war recognizes the Geneva Conventions 
however often they are flouted. Or as I once wrote to the woman who ghosted me the most egregiously, we all owe each other more than silence. But I am getting ahead of myself and growing especially feverish. I have more ground to cover, borrowing frost, more miles to go before I sleep. So let us urge the dozing horses, antediluvian Clydesdales probably, nuzzling into their bridles, heavy-lidded and heavy-hooved, onward. We have work to do. All my ghosts. I have ghosted exactly three times. Esmeralda, a colleague in anthropology, I think. Marisol, a middle school librarian. And Fantine, a middle school teacher. Names, of course, changed for discretion. Esmeralda, I went out with three times. On the third date, she let me know she was leaving town for several months on some research trip, a fact I think we discussed on the date itself, and suggested shyly we keep in touch via email. I agreed readily enough, but upon further reflection, found I was not interested enough to pursue such contact. I didn't reach out, even though I intended to. Now, she didn't reach out, so if I were of a more legalistic cast of mind, I would say I didn't ghost at all. But the understanding was that I'd reach out and I didn't, and to this day, that lapse on my part still exasperates me. I did in a manner ghost. I created an expectation that I did not fulfill, and it was wrong. I thought about contacting her and the other two in advance of this episode, but decided against the mea culpa. It's been too long at this point. I imagine, got over a year. Maybe longer? And would serve only to balm my own conscience. She doesn't care if she ever did. I do. And one doesn't get off that easy. Sometimes one doesn't get let off the hook at all. That's the Puritan in me speaking. Next, Marisol. She is a resident of Metropolis who I met on was maybe now a defunct dating site and app, How About We, God, I forget about that one, that emphasized the nature of the date itself. Uh, we avoided the choose-your-own-adventure kind of bullshit the site advocates, meeting at my regular bar, each of us a little tired but game, expending real effort to recreate a chemistry that our conversation on the site suggested but simply wasn't there in real life, a phenomenon familiar to anyone who has spent enough time online dating. We parted under good terms, but I ruined it, saying I'd like to meet next time I was in town. I'm not sure why I did, perhaps to see if she wanted to, but I immediately regretted it, for I knew I wasn't going to Metropolis in a long time, if ever again. I could again defend myself by saying, well, I never said for sure we'd go on another date, but again, hewing that close to the letter of the ghosting law goes against its spirit. Even my friend Jenny, who has less problem with ghosting than I do, took me to task, and I bowed my head in response to a gentle but firm rebuke, knowing I deserved such censure. Lastly, Fantine. She was a local with whom I had a wonderful day. We kissed at the end of it. We texted each other our enjoyment of it afterward, and then nothing. I didn't reach out. Despite saying I would at the end of the date, I did not. I could say I was approaching the deadline. I could say that life got in the way. I could say I just wasn't interested enough. I could say a million things that may or may not be true, but it doesn't matter. I should have reached out. I did not reach out. I am sorry, Esmeralda, Marisol, and Fantine. The only thing I can say in my defense, the only thing that entitles me to judge other ghosts, is that if any of them had reached out, I would have never ignored them. I also don't think they were really interested, otherwise I would have been likely to hear from them, and I have also have turned down women without ghosting. Again, these are not justifications. I am not blameless here. They are at most mitigating circumstances. But I have been ghosted worse than I have ghosted. 
which is why I've taken aim at certain ghosts with such spleen and more. It is also precisely because I have messed up, that I have been on both sides, that I want to make a difference, that I want to rid the world of disdain and pollutant. It feels too shitty to do both, really, really shitty. And it's so easy to ask of ourselves more, which I don't think we are really doing in any meaningful way, in any way at all. So let's start, eh? Lillian on Ghost. I have a lot to say about ghosting, but mostly I just feel someone should be held accountable. After three fabulous dates, I invited someone whom I liked to my 30th birthday party. I know it was probably too soon to invite him, but I thought things were great, and it was just a party on my rooftop. Anyway, even though we spoke about what he should wear that day, so I know he knew the date and time, he never showed up. I was busy that day hosting the party, so I didn't reach out to him or anyone else I invited, but he just never texted that day. He never texted ever again. Frowny face emoticon. I sent him a text four days after the silence just to say that I wished him luck in dating, but that he should be honest with people. I really didn't want to sound like a nagging girl, but I don't know. I thought three dates would at least get you an honest answer. Guess not. Hi there. Here's some additional material. I've been ghosted twice. The most recent one was my last email to you, and both times I felt so shitty. I met someone two weeks ago, and so far he seems great. This is the first person I've gone on a date with since my birthday ghoster, and now I'm realizing the impact it had on me. Despite how great I think things are going with this new guy, almost each day I'm surprised slash shocked that he's still responding and still wants to hang out. It's as if I'm just waiting for that day when he no longer responds. I remind myself that I have to hope for the best and that yes, it could be that he's actually into me. I have considered casually mentioning to him that he should feel comfortable letting me know he's no longer interested instead of total silence. I also realize it would probably expose so many of my insecurities caused by my previous ghosting experiences and it's probably best not to do that yet, since it's only been two weeks since I met this new guy. Overall, the fear of ghosting is real. I am a trooper about moving on from not-so-great dating experiences, and I know it's a numbers game, so I keep it moving after a failed connection. I just really hope I'm not ghosted this time. It's really a shitty feeling. Thanks for hearing me out on my unsolicited random rant. No, thank you, Lillian. I can easily say that anyone worth having would not even dream of ghosting me. I hope this fellow learned the kind of person whose affection he had captured, because we, the folks that here loved us, we know. And we salute you, now and forever. My friend Matt and I have a shorthand for women of your eminence. You are a Libby, named after Eugene Delacroix's painting Liberty Leading the People. Carry on. You'll get there. You're there already. Elizabeth on ghosting. Marvin, you probably don't remember me, but we messaged a bit long ago on OKC. Elizabeth, lover and native of the Middle West and freshwater generally. Winky face emoticon. I just listened to your podcast. How wonderful. What an auspicious start. You gave voice to many of the thoughts and sadnesses that I've experienced in this frenzied dating world. I found it such a delightfully intimate experience and will share with my friends. Perhaps you don't want this kind of thought via text, and if another one strikes me again, I'll use the prescribed channels, but you ask for thoughts on ghosting, a practice I find cowardly and thoughtless. I've never been truly ghosted, but I've been close. I've held friends' hands as they circle around the disappeared person for months. This is the only thing that's ever given me comfort. 
I don't love the writing of this blog, it's often chaotic, but I found this open letter constructive. Thought I should share. Dear Frustrated, These are the things I wasn't brave enough to say to you, even in text. I didn't lose my phone or your number or track of time. I can assure you there is no message mysteriously stuck in my outbox just waiting to be sent. There was no family emergency and I'm not just working through some stuff right now. I am not too busy at work or out of credit and I have good service. I have made the regrettable yet conscious decision not to text you anymore. I have all but convinced myself that being open and honest would only hurt your feelings even though I know it's a lie. I know that what I'm doing is not fair, but right now my fear is stronger than my guilt. I never set out to hurt you, but suddenly I can see no other ending to this story. You aren't imagining things. There was a time when things were good, even great. We did connect. I did really like you. The smiles, the jokes, the intimate moments, they were all real. But then something happened that made me realize we're not quite compatible. I wish I could tell you that it's not your fault, that there's nothing you could have done differently. That the problem really isn't you. The problem is that I believe we want different things. I can't quite put my finger on it, but in my mind we see the world through different glasses. We speak a different language and we live in different futures. And while I may be able to make you happy right now, I realize that I won't be able to make you happy in the long run. I know you must think I'm an asshole for what I'm doing, that I'm stonewalling you because I don't care about your feelings. In truth, I'm simply scared. My emotions make me so uncomfortable that when I try to express myself, my words get tangled. I'm worried that if I attempt to tell you how I feel, I accidentally say the wrong thing and offend you. If only I was willing to endure that one slightly awkward conversation, I'd save you months of frustration. Instead, I have chosen to withdraw. I will lock up my feelings as I always do and pretend they don't matter. I will ignore my guilt and tell myself this is for the best. I know it's too late, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry for putting my own emotional welfare ahead of yours. I'm sorry for dragging you behind me while I try to make my cowardly escape. I'm sorry for making you feel like you're going crazy. And finally, I'm sorry for ever giving you a reason to doubt yourself. The way I have tried to deal with this situation is proof that you deserve better. You deserve someone who is willing to say the wrong thing, to have the awkward, necessary conversations. You deserve someone who isn't afraid of their emotions, who is willing to be vulnerable and share themselves completely. More than anything, you deserve to be happy. While no one person can ever give that to you, you deserve someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to help you find your happiness within. Elizabeth said about the letter, I think it, the sentiment is honest and useful. The reality is most people are not monsters, especially not people you enjoy. It offers an alternative that doesn't turn the other person into a demon or you into unlovable. I think the letter is okay. It is a little too much about the person apologizing, a little too self-pitying. I don't like the person part about the person being the problem. If you're looking for different things, the person still isn't the problem, as the letter seems to suggest. Also, to repeat what I said earlier, most people don't need your life story, your entire justification. They don't want a song and dance, just a finale, at most a curtain call. Even after the fact, they don't often give a shit. They never did. The simple kindness of closure is more than sufficient, so give it to them. The best part is the last part, far and away. I fucked up. Let me count the ways in which I have fucked up and let me apologize for them. The first part is good too. I'm not using the smoke screen of an excuse, though that is preferable to nothing. And I'm not pretending that ghosting is done for you. It's done for me. So this open letter represents something worthwhile, something honorable, something fair-minded and searching. If more people articulated these thoughts to themselves or felt this way about it, I would be more sanguine about the potential to banish ghosting once and for all. But I suspect most people don't take this kind of responsibility for it, not even to themselves. And that, love dusters, is a problem. And perhaps more to the point, however persuasive, such elaborate apologies and exercises in self-awareness could easily be preempted by a stock phrase and a tougher sense of duty. I had a lovely time, but I don't think we're a match. I didn't sense a connection. We are looking for different things. I am washing my hair forever. I am starting a marathon. I'm too busy. Whatever. The point 
as always, is acknowledgement. And with that simple token, respect, decency. Then we can spare ourselves the guilt and, for far more importantly, the other person, the pain. We shouldn't talk about how difficult it is to express our emotions. We should work to resolve that difficulty to man and woman up. End of story. And an hilarious bit about modern dating and texting that takes dead aim at a kind of ghosting, the flaky gesturing to make plans that you never intend to follow through with, Aziz Ansari summarized our current predicament briskly and brilliantly. Too often you find you are a secretary for this really shoddy organization scheduling the dumbest shit with the flakiest people ever. That's more or less a, a full quote. Unlike Ansari, however, I don't blame texting. I blame us. Luddism is too easy. Aziz Ansari expanded upon this recurrent feature of his material in a recent episode of the relatively new, or at least recent, Netflix series Master of None, which is really worth your time for all kinds of reasons. But I have one more ghost to slay, so I'll save a review of that fine television program for another episode. Walking with the Ghost I've been ghosted plenty of times, and most of those ghosts I've let go, for various reasons. Chief amongst them that, however romantic, I am a realist, and I didn't quite care enough about the person in question to protest the treatment. As Lillian herself said, after all, it's a numbers game. It is best to keep it moving, to practice optimism. And optimism surely informs my view of the world in love no less than the whole of life. But I never fully bought into the status quo we have all begrudgingly, I think, accepted. And if I didn't care enough about the person to voice my disapproval for their conduct, the indignity still stung. And each successive violation against fair play deepened the anguish, the disappointment, the deeply pronounced sense of being ill-used. To be sure, some people don't care. But I suspect a lot of us do, even those who pretend otherwise, even when the other person isn't that great, or isn't that great for us. Trust me, I understand wanting to avoid nursing a grudge and instead taking the higher road, being the bigger person, denying the offending person the satisfaction of your emotional exposure. I understand not wishing to seem pathetic, bitter, graceless, charged with the high crime of sour grapes, I understand these things. I do. And I'm not perfect. Remember, I have myself ghosted. But I also understand pushing back, calling out, saying enough when you have made your voice known to another person, when you have opened your heart, when it is clear you admire this person, admire them deeply, and have put yourself on the line in tribute to their enrichment of your life, however briefly they have touched it. I understand these things more because they are truer. And it is because of that deeper knowledge, because of that higher claim to truth, and because of the fact that I have been the bigger person 99.9% .9 of the time, that at a certain point, I had to draw a line in the sand for all of us. Love, like art, the greatest of the arts perhaps, consists entirely knowing where to draw the line. To paraphrase a quote widely attributed to Wilde, but which apparently belongs to Chesterton. Google's amazing, isn't it? In that vengeful, but ultimately, I think, just spirit, I am giving you all the permission that you've always possessed, but have rarely exercised, perhaps barely even contemplated, not knowing you had it, expressly told by the culture that no such privilege exists. But they are wrong. You have the right to shut that shit down. If the grapes are indeed sour, it is they who have soured them. And whenever you see fit, whenever you think it best, whenever you would benefit from dispensing wrath and vituperation, it is entirely acceptable to remind them of their misdeed. Here's one such reminder I provided, what seems an age ago. Her name is Nadine, and I encountered her on the dance floor. 
every so often a couple of DJs here in town spin classic soul and funk records, and I go when I can, especially since opportunities for dancing in Smallville are seldom. I dress up in my finery, my Friday vest, I apply my balms and ointments, my creams and salves, spray my potions and filters, I spiff up my shoes and roll the lint off my pant legs. I go through outfit after outfit as a conscientious Cinderella who knows too well she only gets one evening, if she's lucky, repeated ad infinitum. And I dance my goddamn ass off. Now even during the search, and certainly since the search has ended, Dancing has never really been about making a move. It isn't about talking to anyone. I go alone and I leave alone, and I largely keep to myself. I will talk to the DJs who are friends of mine. I will accept the overly effusive compliments I receive for my dancing. I will talk to the people I know who I might run into, or the people who want to know me, if they don't detain me from my dancing for too long or aren't too weird. And yes, sometimes I will dance with a woman I find attractive, if she insists, or even one I don't find attractive. But as I said, dancing isn't for them, it's not for anyone but me. Like Madonna, the dance floor is where I feel most beautiful, second only to the classroom. If I have any partner on that glittering surface, it is the one who got away. It is where I feel closest to her. It is where she speaks to me, reminds me I'm not alone and never will be. I, I know she's not there. I'm not delusional. But when I think about the full enormity of what I will never have, I think about that. I'll never get to dance with her. And every time I dance, I am provided some measure of recompense for such a keenly felt loss. I can imagine what it might have been like in another world under another set of circumstances. I repeat those words like a talisman. In another world, under another set of circumstances. On this particular evening, I noticed a librarian type, who is my type, looking my way. That's not uncommon. I'm a good dancer, though not as good as people think I am. I dress well and I dance alone, all of which draw ample attention. Despite her being my type, or perhaps because of it, I affected not to notice. I got on with it. But she kept looking, and I simply found her too attractive to demur from at least talking to her. Once I made my approach, I hoped in conversation that nothing would happen. She wouldn't be at all interested, or I wouldn't be. I can't emphasize enough how much I didn't want the dance floor to be tainted with romantic disappointment. It was, and still remains, my refuge, thank God. My say against confusion, my stance against chaos, to borrow a phrase from Ralph Ellison. But of course I was interested, and it appeared she was, too. And so we talked amiably, with increasing delight and excitement in one another. We danced, and I became enchanted by this lovely, lovely woman. I kissed her by the end of the evening, having drunk a little more than I would have liked, and of course feeling caught up in the moment and I asked for her number before she left, promising to call. When I said I would, she underscored her interest by saying in the tone of a woman who had often been left holding the bag, make sure you do call. This was late in the search, perhaps one of the last 10 or 15 even, when I increasingly dispensed with all the conventional wisdom I had thus far at least paid lip service to. So I called her the next day, injunctions against eagerness be damned, leaving a voicemail saying that I really liked her that I know I should have waited, but that I didn't want to, that I wanted to have dinner with her. She called back later that same day, I believe. I suggested the next day, and we met at a local restaurant. It was as simple a process as any date had ever been over the course of the search. It worked too well, I thought. Well, Cinderella might get her charming. And to be clear, I'm Cinderella in this. There wasn't enough time for me to get a reservation. It's the kind of place you need a reservation for, at least on a weekend. So we found ourselves seated at the bar. 
Before she arrived, I was worried I had come on a little strong on the dance floor by kissing her, which didn't go over badly. I still got the number. But I did feel self-conscious about that choice. I regretted it, in fact, and therefore resolved to dial back the amorousness so she would have no concerns and so that this had every chance to work. I liked her, and I didn't want to fuck things up when everything had already gone better than 90% of the dates I had been on. If you have failed as much as I have, and I hope you haven't, you are haunted by such failure. It clings to you, it seeps into you, it cows, and it enervates you. You are afraid it leaves a mark, a stink, a tell. So when she arrived, I stood up to offer her a simple hug, even though I'm not that great at hugging. I realized that she wanted to kiss me, making a move in that direction, or she had at least planned to. I recovered, I think, with some grace, kissing her on the cheek. We essentially split the difference, and more I smiled to myself. That mutual misunderstanding, that equally shared nervousness, it boded well. I had been on enough dates to know this was going to be a good one, and it was. It was marvelous. I was relaxed, charming, open, honest, and she was the same, kind, attentive, thoughtful, smart, sweet. I felt so comfortable that I let down my guard a little, frank about the weird professional challenges I was facing at the time, and which I am still facing, I guess. Uh, we kissed deeply on parting and promised to meet again. We didn't set up a date on the spot, but I didn't think much of it. She had just moved back to town and was still in the midst of, of moving. Still, I wanted to make sure we met sooner rather than later, even though our schedules didn't align that week. So the next day, I decided to give her a day that I had originally set aside for another date who had been flaky, uh, a day which Nadine had not ruled out, and, reached, and then I reached out via text uh, this time. After hearing nothing all week, I called her, increasingly puzzled to make sure I had done nothing wrong, to make sure she still wanted to get together. Another week passed and still nothing. I called during a free moment during a conference in Milwaukee where I also scored a date. God, I can't even remember her name. That was, that was pretty random. And said that, could we at least talk about what had happened? Could she give me a reason she didn't want to see me again? I know what I said about people not wanting reasons, but this was a conspicuous disappearance. After the second call went unanswered, either by phone or by text, I sent this message via text a week later. Dear Nadine, I have only one thing left to say to you. When I said I'd call you after we met at the dance party, you pressed me on whether I actually would in the tone of someone who had been misled in more than once in that way. And I did. Well, what the fuck? Love is not fair. As Pat Benatar once sang, love is a battlefield, and I accept that without complaint or rancor. But precisely because it is not fair, we must be courteous in its offices. Next time that a man like me, someone kind and decent, treats you as you deserve to be treated, treat him with the same respect. Put another way, be the kind of person you want to be with. You didn't know me the truth, nor even an explanation, but we all owe each other much more than silence. Please then make certain that the next good man who wishes to secure a place in your affections is not subjected to the same disrespect as I have been. Decency demands no less. This is harsher than I remember, clearly betraying my hurt, but it is also appropriate and just. Anger by itself is not unethical. Anger has its uses. I could accept her not liking me. That's the way love goes, as Janet Jackson memorably sang, though I would have been stunned, even crushed. What I could not accept was being discarded like a piece of refuse. If I was not a good date, if I did not meet her standards, if she did not find me to her taste or liking, I was not a bad date either. And she gave no, me no indication that I forfeited her respect or esteem by being inconsiderate, unkind, thoughtless. I held her hand the entire date. 
clearly mooning over her. I'm not subtle. I've never been subtle. She knew that I liked her, and there was no indication she wasn't equally enamored. To this day, I have no idea what happened. I spotted her on OkCupid a few months afterward, which was a punch in the gut. Like I said, I liked her. And I've seen her once around town. We were both at a reading, from which she left early, probably because I was there. She was in the company of someone I imagine she was dating. She gave a couple of readings, too. She's a writer, and I did think about attending, since I attend readings anyway, and I was, I'll confess, morbidly curious how she'd react or whether I might get any closure. Even today, I'd still like to know. But I thought better of it. I had every right, but one's writing is important. I didn't want to impinge on her self-expression when it is so clearly important to her. Even had I gone, I wouldn't have talked to her, so it's unclear I would have got any closure I would have simply tried to solve the mystery using my own emotional intuitiveness. Like any good lonely heart, I showed her a consideration she never showed me. This is a bit of a detour, but I did reach out to her friend who I also met that evening on the dance floor long after the fact. Um, I had revisited the story of how I met Nadine with a couple of friends, mentioning without attaching any importance to the detail that she introduced me to this woman who I talked to for a bit that evening as well. Um, I assumed I was being vetted by the friend. This woman would confirm I wasn't a creeper, but my friends, Richard and Matt, independently of one another, found the detail odd, implying that maybe her friend was the one who was interested all along, that I misread the situation. Or maybe that was the theory that suddenly took shape before me. It was an interesting thought, maybe in a kind of wingman, but one which I didn't attach any importance to until I finally one day decided to test it out. I remembered a little bit about the woman, I have a pretty fantastic memory, plied my expert sleuthing powers and found her email. To this woman will attach the name Catherine. I drew up probably the weirdest email I have ever sent, uh, conscious of how unconventional a choice this was. I was ostensibly asking, in as natural a way possible, if I had been introduced to her that evening because she was interested in me at the time. She was also told me that she just broke up with her boyfriend, so it was at least plausible, I guess. And I met that boyfriend at the, the one time I ran into, in, into Nadine, um, but I didn't realize it until afterwards. Anyway, life is funny in that way. Looking at the email again, which is fine, but so self-conscious about its own weirdness, I have to wonder what I was thinking, but she was nice, nicer than the email merited, and wrote back, Hi Marvin, yes, I remember you. I can understand how one might see the plausibility of such an idea. You needn't fear feeling sheepish about contacting me. It's perfectly reasonable. But in short, I'm not interested. I appreciate you, your reaching out, and I wish you a happy spring. I said the email proved my friend was wrong. My friend did not agree. It is almost impossible for him to admit he's wrong, and there is some ambiguity there, and certainly a misreading of my intent, though I, though I get that. Um, but whoever was correct, Katie's graciousness did not get me any closer to the truth, and so I'll never know. What I do know is that Nadine isn't a shitty person. She simply did a shitty thing. That should be a comfort, as Elizabeth observed about the letter I read earlier. If there are no angels in the Imperium, there aren't any devils there either. And no, Nadine is no exception. She's kind and personable, a fine writer, engaged citizen, fantastic teacher. She's a credit to her family and to her community. I have no doubt. And as harsh as that text message might have sounded, I have never been harsher in my discussion of her than in that moment. She is a good person, and I cherish the evening we spent together. However heavy the emotional cost, however much she probably regretted it. 
But it is precisely because she is a good person that I worry, that I am not comforted. If she was just an asshole, I could write her off forever. We could write them all off forever. But what are we to do when even the worthy accept this as a normal course of affairs? When even those vehemently opposed to ghosting fall prey to it, such as myself. Most people who ghost aren't terrible in the rest of their lives or even in love, but in the arena of romantic love, when it seems to me most imperative for all of us to be thoughtful, people are far less so. And they think that's okay because the culture allows them to think that way. We are allowed to make mistakes, to fall short, to not live up to our own exacting standards as humans on this planet. There are greater crimes, I know, than this failure of consideration and care happening every goddamn second of every goddamn day. But it is a problem, and it is a problem I can do something about. And what makes it most a problem, what truly bothers me about ghosting, is less that it happens and more that we have normalized it. Let me tell you a parable to illustrate my point. In an early season of Grey's Anatomy, a baby is found abandoned in a trash can in a high school. The episode was notable because the high school girls sought out as a possible mother were played by girls of actual high school age, which doesn't often happen in television, at least not in a storyline like this, and served to remind us how young high schoolers actually are when they are not played by 20 or even 30-year-olds. This particular storyline revolved around the search for the identity of the mother and glossed in pretty unflattering ways the entitlement and cluelessness of parents who don't particularly care about these daughters or really know anything about them. Since we are in a hospital, the baby was in trouble, of course. They needed to know the mother's identity for purely medical reasons. And during the operation on the beleaguered newborn, Alex Karev, an intern, marveled over how anyone could, ab could abandon a baby in a trash can. The moment serves to humanize Dr. Karev, who has been established as a cad and a douchebag, who only cares about becoming a uh, big-time plastic surgeon and having casual uh, sexual encounters with uh, many of the staff members, and to provide a comment on his own difficult childhood, which we have already been given some indication of involved abandonment and are given more by the time the episode ends. Dr. Addison Montgomery, the attending OBGYN, who Karev assists on the surgery, responds with sympathy for both the parents and the as-yet-unidentified teenage mother in this moment. There is a point about gender here, and about age, I guess. Karev can, uh, can understand, but only so much, as a man and as a younger man, no less. But perhaps made with some irony, as Dr. Montgomery is not a mother, and it takes quite some time, most of private practices run the character's spin-off show for her to become one, to show perhaps afraid of slotting them both too comfortably into traditional gender roles. Anyway, here's the exchange. How did you not know your kid's pregnant? You love your kids. You want to see the best in them. Okay, then how do you have a baby and throw it in a trash can? Something happens, and you panic. You freeze, and you want to hide it and pretend like it didn't happen. I get that. You get that? I do. I just don't get what happens afterward. I don't get how you go back to class and pretend like everything's fine. Everything's not fine. As interesting as I think the scene functions thematically in the context of the show, and there's a lot more to say about how Grays imagines gender, family, class, privilege, the reason I have really cited this moment is because of the sophisticated ethical proposition Kate Walsh's character offers. Namely, while we all make mistakes, we all fuck up, we're all frail with foibles and shortcomings, we're all wretched sinners if you require a religious framework, we have the capacity to reflect, to think 
about what we have done to correct our lapses, to make up for our mistakes, to repair what we have broken. I'll never hear from Nadine, and I'll never be able to do over my own forays into ghosting. But we can resolve to realize we've done something wrong and to work like hell to make sure we do better in the future. This cannot be the new normal. This is not normal. It is hard work, there is no question. But my God, it's not that hard. And if it is, difficulty is the price of being human. You don't get to make other people pay for your emotional shortcomings. You have to pay for them yourself. You have to do better. I have to do better. Or I would if I hadn't given up. And call me crazy, but I think we can do better. As I said, ghosting is a relatively recent social practice. Yes, the psychological concept of avoidance is not new, but our ability to practice avoidance in this way and our hopeless recourse to it is, I believe, a recent development. So we can right the ship. There is still time. While capable of a great deal that is worthy, our tools, our technology, they must not confine us to a narrow sphere of moral action. We are still responsible for ourselves and for our ghosts in the machine. These, to quote a line from Sufjan Stevens's song Vesuvius, are the murdering ghosts we cannot ignore. Now there is a serious defense of ghosting that exists out there, and that is the feminist argument, namely that men can't handle rejection. Therefore, ghosting undertaken by women provides a preventative measure to avoid some nasty backlash. To be sure, there are, there are men who cannot take rejection appropriately, in a significant number, no doubt. There are even some women, though not nearly as many. But the unfortunate fact is that we have to give all people the benefit of the doubt, especially when they have given us no reason to doubt them. I'm also not sure, to be honest, how much that operates as an actual motive, or at least I wonder how much that it does. Now, my own experience on the lack of articles citing this can be easily dismissed as unscientific anecdotal, especially when most journalism is still written by men, and I am a man, after all. But what is harder to dismiss are a couple of purely logical objections. If one is really worried about an aggrieved man reacting badly, might he not react badly even if one doesn't reject him? Might he still not be aggrieved by a ghost? I guess the thinking there is that said individual can tell himself it ended for reasons entirely unrelated to him and therefore is less likely to be a complete asshole. Okay, I can buy that rationale. But what seems to me more of a challenge is that even if that's theoretically true, that every man could be a jerk when rejected and therefore shouldn't be given the opening in the first place, isn't that practically impossible to enforce? I mean, why would a woman hook up with a man in a casual encounter, for example, if it could always go south or go on a date or initiate any contact whatsoever? It is grossly unfair, there is no question, that women have to deal with much worse treatment by men than the reverse, in love no less than the whole of life. And as men, as human beings, we must all work to correct that disparity, that gap, that injustice. We need to call out that shit and more vociferously than the misdeed of ghosting. But we also can't assume the worst and call me naive, but I don't think we do. Or that we have to. For this reason, as well as all the others I have attempted to painstakingly put forth, in my case against the practice, I'll reiterate what I said before, which is what I told Lillian when she first confessed to calling someone out who ghosted her prior to these stories I read earlier. You have every right to protest bad behavior. 
You don't have to accept it. No one does. At the same time, I believe it's also a good practice to express appreciation for those who treat you decently, to thank those who don't ghost you, who handle you fairly and humanely. That's something I've done a number of times. Alana, for example. Gretchen, too. <laughs> Both of whom acquitted themselves extraordinarily well. Because the point of all of this, of love dust, is to forge an affirmative vision we all might inhabit, not gratuitously tear people down. In fact, part of the reason I retired is because I didn't want to keep busting ghosts, as it were, and I didn't want to become a full-fledged ghost myself. I didn't want to become Nadine, so I stopped before that happened. I'd also like to issue a number of caveats about calling someone out about this ghost-busting. You don't get to be a dick, you don't get to insult them to say something nasty, to use slurs and hateful language. Being ghosted is not carte blanche for being sexist, racist, aggressive, violent, etc. You don't get to call someone out for rejecting you in a way you don't like. If they give you something and it's not an insult, move on. That is all anyone is entitled to. We don't owe each other the truth or even an explanation, just the respect of a human acknowledgement. Also, when you call someone out, it's over. There's no going back. You can't be friends if that is even anything anyone really wants. And you certainly can't expect them to change their mind down the road. Some, therefore, will make the argument that you shouldn't call out a ghost because they might at some point come around. Someone who I became friends with a while back, but who turned out to be a complete waste of time, nonetheless gave the most convincing case for this position which is essentially the long game or long tail theory, where everyone always remains in play. Things change, you can have another crack at them, and so you might one day get your shot with this person if you hang fire, to use an exquisite phrase Henry James favored, and resist the urge to burn down the bridge. Mixing the metaphor and resorting to cliche there. In very rare circumstances, after all, there could be a legitimate reason for ghosting. Namely, a ghost might not exactly be a ghost. Maybe a relative died. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they moved to Antarctica for six months on some kind of polar expedition. But for most, this isn't the case. The vast majority of ghosts just don't care. I hate to say it, but it's true. Still, it is a risk you must be willing to take. Something entirely legitimate may have happened. You can guard against that danger by asking what has happened before you go half-cocked. And if it is something serious, it is still their obligation to say something in response. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. They don't know, after all, that you haven't had something traumatic happen. We all must practice empathy. And the likelihood of anyone changing their mind, even if you don't say something to challenge them, is very slim to none. I mean, that doesn't even happen in romantic comedies. Whether you are justified or not, however, in your denunciation of their character, you will be the villain in their story. They are not likely to apologize, explain, or respond, even if they know they are in the wrong, perhaps especially not then. Their friends will confirm your villainy, desperation, pathetic grasping after straws, etc. And who knows? Perhaps people do talk. Perhaps you could even gain a reputation. That's another argument against ghost-busting. The argument from self-interest. Jenny, you've made this case before, and I think most persuasively. You harm future prospects by essentially poisoning the well. But I think the danger of information being spread in that way is overstated. And even if it isn't, 
Anyone worth their salt would judge you on your merits, not on the opinions of others. They wouldn't substitute someone else's judgment for their own. Or to return to the cliché about the well I invoked and add another, they don't have to drink the water just because they are led to it. If either is too much to expect of other people, if either is too naive, in other words, all that is left to me is the argument from principle, which is the only thing that matters to a love duster in the end anyway. If you wish to say something and don't, out of fear of how you'll appear to that person, out of some mistaken fealty to a conventional wisdom that is neither an appropriate convention nor at all a piece of wisdom, you'll be the villain in your own story. There are more important things than romantic love. There is the love you have for yourself, your precious, incalculable self-respect. Take it from someone who has made far too many compromises with his. Lest I ignore the realities of the world we live in for who gets to express anger and who doesn't, there is a particular danger for some people in choosing this response, and I speak here as a person of color, as an African-American of mixed race. There are stereotypes that condition how black anger appears to white people. If you don't believe that, that's fine. I do. As does any black person, really. You are free to skip this portion if you wish. If you are black, and I think this is really a black thing, and you don't date outside of your race, this is really a non-issue. But I have dated primarily white women, which is something I'll get into in the episode on race and dating. And this was something I've had to consider when I've decided to call someone out for ignoring me, such as Nadine. Look, anger will look bad coming from anyone, and from any man in particular. From the latter, in from the latter specifically, it will resemble entitlement, even if you are principled and above board, as I believe I was in my dealings with Nadine. And I get it, there is a lot of male entitlement out there. From a black man, however, there is a real danger of it also looking like menace, like the angry black woman. The trope of the angry black man is a way of making another person's anger seem illegitimate, inappropriate, and finally frightening. This is a much larger and longer conversation a conversation that has been undertaken by much more learned minds than myself who think about race. So if you're interested in how this plays out specifically, go look at the social science and critical race theory on the subject. Now, this is not to say all black anger is legitimate by default. This is only to say it is no less likely to be legitimate than anger coming from anyone who isn't black, but is more likely to be read in a pejorative way even when there are far more legitimate grievances at stake than mere romantic disappointment, such as the systemic racism we still see today. Now, anger isn't something I'm comfortable with for reasons entirely unrelated to race. Like most men in this country, I'm informed by the stoicism of American masculinity, of being cool under pressure, to quote Hemingway, who I think I quoted before in the inaugural episode. I am indebted to this cultural inheritance only to a certain extent, however, the extent to which I believe Stoicism can be useful, both for men and for women. Because taken too far, the idea is poison, producing what I like to call the myth of male strength. You never cry, you never talk about your emotions, you're never vulnerable. This is a mistake. As Meredith Grey herself once said, vulnerability isn't the opposite of strength, but rather a necessary part. In fact, in that myth, anger is probably the only legitimate emotion to express. My discomfort also owes something to the larger Stoic tradition of the ancient Greeks from which this American iteration derives, where you weather life's difficulties philosophically with an almost Olympian hauteur. That's a great phrase from Ralph Ellison. 
and it also comes to me from the Puritans, who I've already mentioned as formative to my sense of self. Plain living and high thinking require such flintiness of spirit. and endurance, they also probably borrowed from the Stoics. It's really a consequence of being English. My mother and her side of the family are English, and the English are reserved people. It can be overstated, but the stiff upper lip is a real thing. On second thought, they probably inspired the Puritans more, since they were English after all, and they in turn were probably inspired by the Stoics, and uh, I'm sure there's some connection between Stoicism and, and early Christianity. Look at that! Intellectual history! <laughs> okay, not really. My aversion to anger is also a consequence of being working class, where the ethos is very much in the same Stoic mold, and perhaps most basically of all, it is, I think, a question of temperament that can neither be fully encompassed by race, nationality, intellectual traditions, whatever else. I just don't like drama, conflict, argument. I don't like losing control. And my great reserve of equanimity means I don't often do so. I knew I had to see a therapist a couple of years ago when that reserve began to break down. Even then, my anger was private and directed at myself. But race has something to do with it. Race matters. Or even if my distaste for anger was entirely unrelated to what W.E.B. Du Bois calls double consciousness, the perception on the part of black people for how they are perceived by the white gaze, and it isn't unrelated to that. My expression of it would still be shaped by that perception. Put another way, for whatever reason I avoid anger, I know I have to tread a little bit more lightly in deploying it. And if I was more stereotypically black, and these are all bullshit constructions, but that is to say darker skin, someone who employed black vernacular, etc. Well, I would have to tread even more lightly. So I had the text message vetted. I did this in part because I don't like expressing anger and wanted to make sure I did it responsibly without confusing the message or being a jerk, but also in part because I know my anger carries more risk as a black person, and I needed another set of eyes on it. If she saw me as a greater villain on this basis, she could conceivably complain to where I worked, to the police, to a male friend who could tell me to fuck off, who knows. But I decided to take the risk anyway. I didn't think she would. I didn't think it was likely. But I do think it's possible. Now, I don't think Nadine is or was racist. I wouldn't have asked her out if I did. I don't think she would have gone out with me if she was. But however free of racism Nadine is or isn't, the implicit bias test is a real thing, which affects us all. White, black, brown, whatever. This is a test that shows we are all more likely to conjure up negative affects for black people, to make stereotypical associations on those bases. We have, alas, been programmed by a long series of cultural processes and forms. We all live in time. We all live in history. They are not the total and the sum of us, but they exist, and in a meaningful way. Whatever you decide to do, and whyever you decide to do it, I give you my blessing, my sympathy, my deep understanding for when you become the victim of a ghost. You'll be the hero in my story, and in any story worth telling, because what you have done is what they can never do. You have put yourself on the line. You have been honest. You have made an effort. You have given a shit. You have let yourself feel and confess that feeling to someone who likely didn't deserve it. And I love you for it. I love everyone who is asking themselves difficult questions, holding themselves to high standards, who is entering into these entanglements openly and responsibly. I even love the people who have been better than I have been, 
those who have never ghosted. I salute you, one and all, intrepid, great-souled knight errants. I only ask that you ask yourself what you want, and if it is to shut that shit down, that you give yourself the permission to do so. If you feel uncomfortable abrogating that right to yourself, let me step in. I am giving you that permission. They can call it sour grapes if they like, and they will. You will be pathetic, desperate, angry, entitled, a loser, a sad sack of shit. But again, I cannot stress enough. It is they who have soured the grapes. It is they who have shit the bed. And you don't have to drink the rancid juice or lie in the foul excrement of their incompetence. You can leave it on their door. They broke it. They bought it. Don't be afraid to remind them. Immaterial beings, though they may be, they won't like the smell either. But facing that stench, facing the worst, is the only way any of us are going to move forward. And I include myself in that miasma. I am prepared to be reproached for any mistakes I have made. And you should be as well. We need to give up the ghost before we give up much more. Thank you for listening to Love Dust. Until next time, take care of yourself and your most secret heart.